That was a deep one. That was full. I like it. Full you know, shot. You know what they Not, say? No pink know. shots. <laughs> you know what they say? New year, new me. Is that what the kids are saying nowadays? I don't know, man. Yeah. I just know it's a new year. It's 2020. <laughs> Everybody's going to do shows about like hindsight or vision or 2020 this. I, I'm sure that they'll do it, but that's all right. I was going to say, Down. what do you think the odds are of there being like a roaring 20s? I've already show. heard some some rumors in the rumor mill that a couple groups, maybe a drum corps or two, uh, specifically one, is doing like a 2020 vision or a hindsight or into the light or, I don't know, something regarding 2020 or sight. I'm sure that that will be a thematic thing, especially in the fall when we get into marching band, but yeah. that's all good. Would you um, like to out said drum corps or should we leave it to them? No, nah, I'm not going to do that. All right, all right, all right whatever. <laughs> Because everybody's so weird about their, like, show announcements and stuff. Now they, like, wait, and they make sure people, when they come to their spring training, like, don't record or take pictures of their props. So I'm yeah. not going to – I don't want to blow my connections. <laughs> don't want to make anyone angry. So, uh, yeah, we're back after a kind of longer hiatus, you know, Christmas, New Year. Speaking of that, how was your Christmas? Christmas was pretty good. I got sick for, like, 12 days straight, Jeez. which was awful. Weren't Some sinus, like – coughing yeah i was in florida day after christmas called up my doctor i was like yo you're gonna have to hook me up with some antibiotics because i feel like trash so she <laughs> called it in down to cvs in southern florida where i was of course it took a couple days for those bad boys to kick in but then finally before new year's i was starting to feel like i could actually enjoy my vacation time uh, and then now i'm starting to feel back to normal thankfully but just in time for it to be cold here in kentucky so yeah it's uh it got warm really weird oddly like christmas for like five days around it in kentucky was like in the 60s which is super weird and then new year's it got cold for two days and then of course on cue as the ohio valley does it got warm again and my head felt like it was going to explode last week so that was fun but yeah i'm all better now so before we get into who today's guest is, uh, welcome everyone to the Aged Out Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Fantini, and with me, as always, is... Evan Worrell. And uh, thanks for being here today after the long holiday. Uh, go ahead and hit the subscribe button on YouTube, subscribe on uh, Spotify, iTunes, or I guess rather it's Apple Podcasts, whatever. You know what I mean. Uh, follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, so you never miss an update or an episode. And today's guest is one that kind of just fell into our lap. And so I'll let Evan take it from there, and then we'll just let him introduce himself, and we'll see where it goes. Yeah, this is actually the first guest that neither Mike and I have actually ever met in person. I'm sure, mm -hmm. I'm sure that we were probably all three in similar areas or venues at the same time, just with his job, which we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, but we've never actually run in or introduced until he reached out uh, on social media, sent us some messages. It's like, hey, listen to some podcasts. And then we kind of chatted back and forth and we're able to be like, hey, man, we would actually really enjoy having you on the episode if we can make it work. Uh, so without further ado, coming from not cold Kentucky, uh, we have from another West Coast guest from California, we have Brian Stockard. Did I pronounce that right? Uh, you sure did. Sounds good. All right. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate uh, the podcast work you guys are doing. It's pretty cool to, to listen to the wide variety of uh, guests you have on from recent age outs to older age outs like myself and big name people and up and coming people. It's, it's really, really fun to check out. 
Well, awesome, man. Yeah, we re- really appreciate the support. Uh, Brian said he had just been kind of checking out some episodes. Uh, we'll get into this in more detail, too. But the most recent episode we did with Eric Shriver, which if you haven't listened to, go back and listen to that. But Brian has a connection to Eric. Uh, saw Eric, I guess, post about it on his Facebook or Instagram, checked it out, and then kind of reached out and back and forth. And now here we are. Um, but yeah, I think that's one of the beautiful things. I know Mike and I have said several times on here before, uh, in reference to the six degrees of separation in Kevin Bacon, but in the drumming community, it feels more like two or three. Uh, and this is definitely one of those instances where we've never met, but just through mutual networking of friends, we're able to connect and, uh, get on here. So yeah. Is the weather nice out there? Uh, as you were talking about, um, you were dealing with, I was looking it's, I, I live in Chino Hills, and it's 70 degrees currently right now. It's not fair. And I have, I'm wearing <laughs> flip-flops. Also not fair. <laughs> yeah, it's been seasonably warm for us, but not that. Not that warm. Yeah. No, so. not quite. <laughs> but uh, So, yeah, you have an interesting path. Um, so we'll do, like a, I guess, a brief introduction of you, like where you grew up, kind of got into the marching arts or just music in general. Uh, you've kind of moved around the country a little bit, and we'll uh, we'll touch on those as we go, and then kind of get into some some of your current gig with your current job and all that. So, uh, kind of take us away, man. Where where'd you get started? Music? Uh, was it fourth grade, fifth grade, middle schools, all that jazz? Yeah, I got started in third grade band playing the trumpet, and I played trumpet third grade all the way through my freshman year of high school. So my freshman year of high school, I marched, I played trumpet in the marching band. And um, in sixth grade, I picked up the guitar and I played the guitar sixth grade, you know, through now. And I played guitar all four years of high school jazz band. Um, So relatively well-rounded all the way through high school. But during the fall marching band of my freshman year, all of my buddies were in uh, the drum line. And I just connected with them. I thought what the drums were doing were way cooler than what I was doing. And um, I asked them, like, can I join the, uh, the drum line? Uh, I grew up in a town called Hacienda Heights. It's a suburb of L.A. And um, we had, at the time, the school had a gigantic, you know, like 300 people in the marching band. And there were like 40 trumpets or something. So they weren't going to miss me at all. Freshman. <laughs> wow, that's, that's a lot of trumpets. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was enormous. And uh, they had a lot of great players, really great music program there. So the drum line was for the size of the band, the drum line was pretty conservative. It was like, you know, three to four snares, two to three tenors, four or five bass, that kind of thing. And like maybe, I don't know, 10 people in the pit. So it wasn't anything extravagant. So they were welcoming people in. So I went to, there wasn't really, this was in the nineties. I graduated high school in 1997. So there wasn't really a lot of indoor drumline stuff going on. There was winter drumline out here which people from outside of Southern California find it hilarious because it was winter drumline, but it was people would wear their marching band uniforms and just play literally on, still on the football field and the stadium because <laughs> it was like 60, 70, 80 degrees in the winter. Yeah, so, the concept um, of winter in Southern California. <laughs> yeah, so the idea for us was why would we play inside a gym? It sounds terrible. Why don't we just play outside where you can hear everything? Um, to- completely oblivious to actual change of seasons in other parts of the country. So, But our, our school didn't even do that. We had percussion ensemble and jazz band and wind ensemble and all that. So the first 
get together for the upcoming year for drumline was in april it was like a little audition and i showed up and they asked me like oh you know can you read music and i said yeah i can read music and they said okay you're in <laughs> um <laughs> so they threw me on bass and um i you know that was in the that was april of 1994 and the guy teaching uh the baseline our bass tech was this guy named sajad khan and Sajad doesn't teach anywhere now or anything. He doesn't really do much, but he had, so this was April of 94. So he had just aged out the previous summer of 93 playing bass drum in the cadets. And they won that year. That was the year, you know, where they beat star of Indiana by one tenth. It was this big, you know, legendary cadet year and star of Indiana year. And sure. it was also really odd because uh, back then drum corps were still regional. Now they are like the farthest thing. They're not regional in any way. Um, well, maybe some open class cores are, but when you look at the blue coats, like none of those kids are from Ohio, or very few of them are. Yeah, um, yeah it was all like the Blue Devils had their camp in California, the Cadets had their camp in New Jersey. Now it's everybody's like having satellite camps and they're picking up kids from all over. Yeah, it was just so it was very, very unusual that there was some California kid that had marched in the Cadets. It was very strange. Um, so I was intrigued by that that oh this guy went against the norm and he was so intense and anyone that listens to this who knows Sajad knows I don't really have to go into too much detail but he's so intense and I just couldn't believe him like this guy is taking this this is just banned like what the heck is this guy's problem he's really going <laughs> what, I, been you know I, forever drill yeah. sergeant over here yeah it's just it was like so over the top and but I kind of liked it I'm like man this guy is so he is hyping something so much like, I don't know anyone that hypes anything like this. And so I was kind of into it. Then he gave me um, this uh, item that's called a cassette tape, and I had to put it into what's called a tape player. <laughs> oh, and, my gosh. Um, Are you about to talk about the tape? <clears throat> yeah. The so, tape? Oh, my God, dude. We both. The, the 93 tape. Is that what you're talking about? Oh, um, is, it, is, is it? Are you talking about the triplet diddle exercise tape? Well, um that was on there, but this is like this 93 cadets lot tape. Now, okay, no, no, okay. mind you, the only way to experience a lot warm up back then was to just literally physically go to one. So to have any sort of access to a lot warm up where you don't have to be there, it's, I'm like laughing at myself as I'm saying this, but um, to have an audio recording in 1994 of a lot of, uh, uh, of a, a high level drum line that's not in your area was like having gold in your hand. It was like, wait, this is the cadets. How'd you get this? Who was there? This micro, you have microphones. How do you have a microphone? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it just seems so silly. But at the time it was just like, I can't believe this is the cadets. And then he, it was bass sectional, quad sectional, snare sectional, battery, percussion ensemble, full core. Some guy just had, at the time, like was a it was a big deal to have some decent stereo microphones, and um, he made this tape, and it just started. I guess you could say it went viral in a way. It started. Yeah, just imagining someone in a lot with like what they would have to have at that time, like size wise, to make a recording. <laughs> it's just kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, it was just like it was decent, and like the quality of the recording was decent. I mean, and like I just I couldn't understand how a drumline was able to play stuff like this i thought it was like an edited tape or something or special effects i didn't understand did you I guys speed this up <laughs> yeah that's what it sounded like and um and then when the end of the summer came 
Uh, of, so this was 94. I know I'm giving you a lot of detail, but the beginning of how impactful it was was such a big deal to me. In 94, at the end of the summer, you know, everybody was so anxious to get some sort of footage of DCI finals because there was no real, I mean, there was internet, but not really. And um, there wasn't a way to really watch it. PBS did something in September where you could uh, watch like a four and a half, six minute, like part of a, the drum corps shows, but it wasn't the full show. So you had to wait. You had to order your VHS tapes of DCI finals and wait for them to show up in the mail before any of us ever saw anything. And um, at the time, I didn't really, I wasn't really hip to go into shows. So the first video or image of any drum corps thing I ever saw was the 94 Blue Devils. And um, I Great just, show. I, I just was like, how, how are these guys making band cool? Like, this is so weird. <laughs> um, so I got like this lot experience in a way. And then I got the Blue Devil world champion like, my God. And I, anyways, I was hooked. So then I, you know, that was my sophomore year of high school. And I just was so into it. And then my next year, I played snare. Um, fall of 95, I played snare. And then the next summer of 96 was my first year marching drum corps. So it was just two years after picking up sticks for the first time ever. I um, was in Pacific Crest and I played quads. And, nice. Uh, it, 96 Pacific Crest was the third year of PC's existence. And now they've ex existed for 26 years or something like that, 25. That's pretty wild. And, yeah, it was cool. We were wearing like, we had parts of local marching bands, uniforms, like pants from one school, jackets from another school. <laughs> and we had Shakos, but we, we owned the plumes. And that was like a big deal. We owned the plumes. <laughs> And I, we had black pants, white jackets with gold, uh, gold buttons and uh, a gold cummerbund. Sick. It was so, it was so brutal. And I, Classy. we had bo borrowed Yamaha snares for the snare line and bass line. And we had Remo tenors. This was back when Remo made drums. Uh, and <laughs> they weighed like Remo 900 ever made pounds. Drums. Yeah. Well, th there's a reason they don't anymore, but um, <laughs> <laughs> they make drum heads exceptionally well and they you know they went for the drum thing but it, they were really heavy and they were the, it was odd because they were the small quads they were the 8 10 12 13 and they were heavier than the regular size um it's <laughs> not how this is supposed to work yeah it's just weird so i played on that and um uh then the next year i marched pacific crest in 97 playing snare and uh that was awesome um you know being in a snare line and stuff and in 96 and 97, when I was in this drum corps, that was when I was going to shows and going to lot, going to warm-ups for the first time. I had never seen a high-level drum line in person ever. And like after you guys had performed, you'd go watch other groups? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Like we would perform and then we would, you know, we were, this was back when DCI was three divisions. So we were division three in 96. So we would perform, geez, 4.30, 5 o'clock. Um maybe six or something like that. And then we would quickly get, you know, dressed um, out of our uniform, get a snack and then, you know, go. That's when blue devils and Vanguard and uh, velvet Knights back then were going. And oh, it, velvet Knights. It, it was awesome, man. I got my first year of drum corps was the last year of velvet Knights existing. Well, sort of, they came back in the two thousands as a division, as an open class core, but 
that was the last like real year, which uh, a lot of people don't know. The last year of Velvet Knights uh, existing, uh, the caption head of percussion was Mike Jackson. Oh, yeah. Didn't they like there was something that happened, too, with like Velvet Knights in another group that like folded and then they, like merged or something like that. Maybe I can't remember. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of groups in California. A lot of people want to be drum corps, but um, well, 97. I, I saw a picture of you guys with like ten quads or something like that, right? Yeah. So, um, I uh, it, we were talking about the notes you were taking, um, and you mentioned Dave Hinkle. So Dave Hinkle is a guy out here that was he marched in the Velvet Knights in the 80s for like five or six years. He was a snare drummer in that group, and he was a section leader. And he taught me in high school. And he was the caption head of Pacific Crest. So he was recruiting me to come. Oh, you should come March PC. So, um, you know, he was like pretty much my drumline instructor for every line I was ever in, uh, except for one. And Dave had this, you know, amazing idea of the snares would take off their drums and put on tenors for part of the drum solo in 97, which... It was a cool moment in the show, but that also meant every single warm-up and every single rehearsal, we had to carry snares and tenors. Oh. It was brutal. So, um, <laughs> everyone who marched, everyone who's marched Phantom Regiment is like, we can relate, brother. Oh, yeah. I think it was, was it last summer or two summers ago when Phantom did that? And I just know two Evan summers. And I, I think Evan and I were in the finals lot watching, and they showed up, and yep, they, they, were, they were wearing the quads, right, with a snare drum in their right and arm carrying the snare drums. It's like, that just well, has to be miserable. It was funny, because, like, this was back, you know, this we can talk about this when we, with my job, too, but this was back when, in the 90s, the whole corporate sponsorship thing, the way it exists now, didn't exist then. And it was, if you want to have instruments on the field, like, we have a rehearsal for the drum line, and we need sticks, you know, we have to go to the music store and buy sticks and then like it was like we didn't have, they weren't provided for us or anything like that and so um the reason i say that is because with these quads um we developed a relationship with yamaha pacific crest developed a relationship with yamaha at the time and were able to buy these quads but they had no spock drums so it was just drums one two three four and that's it and while that was relatively lame it also allowed us to kind of carry this was back when the only way to hold a snare drum were J-bars. There wasn't like any kind of, you know, 500-part Randy May contraption connected to it. <laughs> it was just J-bars. <laughs> so you could actually put the, the back bar, the quads, right into the J-bars. So we carried the tenors in the J-bar and the drum, the snare drum on the J-bar. So we never had to carry anything with our hands, but it still sucked. Um, <laughs> I don't but it was kind you. of fun. Yeah, we had like 10 quads for the solo, so we had like 10 people playing, then we had five and five, and, you know, there was, like anything, you know, you have lifelong friends that you make. I didn't march in 98, because I was going to school in San Diego, and and um, I, I needed <laughs> I needed some hyper-focus on college. We've all heard that story before. Mm -hmm. um, so there was <laughs> yep. no marching that summer, but I went back in 99, and I marched in Pacific Crest again, and that year was awesome. We had... Um, that was the first, well, 98 Pacific Crest. I didn't march that year, but 98 was the first year Pacific Crest was like, wow, these guys are pretty good. And then in 99, you know, we were undefeated. It was kind of weird. We didn't go to DCI finals. Our last show was something called Pacific Procession. It was like a Vanguard home show up in Northern California in like the third, the second week of July. And that was our last show. We never left California. 
And um, so that was kind of weird. But we were undefeated that whole time. We beat the Mandarins, who were Division Two back then, by like four points. And then they went on and won DCI championships. And so we felt like rock stars. You know, we were like, wow, this Pacific Crest is really good. We got – 99 was the first year Pacific Crest bought their own uniforms. <laughs> um so that made us feel like rock stars because we have our own uniforms and we were using drums, the Yamaha drums we were using, we bought from the Blue Devils and they used them in 94. Oh, cool. So, <laughs> and, you know, going back to my first ever seen drum corps was a video of 94 Blue Devils and now I'm playing on those drums. It was just like a dream come true. Nice. You know, That's awesome. Just, yeah, it was really cool and it, and I marched with this guy uh, named Tim Tintari. Uh, he he would be a, a cool guy for you guys to talk to, maybe. But Tim Tintari was um, we were in the Sterling together, and then he went on and marched Blue Devils 2000 2001. He became Blue Devils snare tech for maybe six or seven years, and I forget what his last year was, but it was like 2012 or something like that. So he he had these crazy good hands. And he was the guy that I would come up to and say, hey, Tim, look what I did. I can grid this thing where, you know, you can like move a diddle and you can do the cheese dogs and the, the hula hoops on the left hand accents. I was trying all these crazy things. And he was like, oh, that's cool, man. Yeah, but can you do it off the left? And I'm like, God damn it. This guy can do anything. <laughs> and I drove me nuts. And like, I kept coming to him with these things. And it was it was really cool because he he was challenging me in a way. He was like, that's awesome. And can you do it like this? Can you do it like that? And my, my skill set and vocabulary expanded a hundred times over because of that guy. And, uh, actually we're still really close friends today. Now he, he's married with two kids and we get our families together and sit back like a couple of old farts talking about old drum corps while our kids play in the playground and stuff. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. I actually know who you're talking about too, just because I like have some of those videos of like, Oh one, oh one Blue Devils is actually the second like DVD VHS that I ever purchased. It was like a behind the scenes like following through their tour, and he's yeah. in that 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 Away Day Blue show, which was one of my favorite Blue Devil shows of all time. Yeah, um, he had long, long, long hair until Finals Day. His <laughs> age out, his Finals Day of his age out, he shaved, he cut his hair short. He was just kind of I don't know if he wanted to be Roger Carter because Roger Carter had that long hair. And so yeah. young teenagers would see him walking off the field and they would take those shakos off and put it on their snare drum and his long flowing locks of gorgeous hair would like flop down and he had these monster chops and everyone would cheer for him. He was a rock star. <laughs> rock star. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. And so when 99 came to an end, um, I was thinking back to Sajad and I was thinking like, man, you know, thanks to Sajad and Dave Hinkle. And Tim Tintari, I really feel like I can go to the next level and I want to do something that people out here never really do. I want to go march on the East Coast and not on the West Coast. I don't want to age out in Blue Devils and Vanguard like everyone else tries to do. I want to age out in the cadets. And so I went to the cadets and auditioned and it was totally awesome. And I couldn't have asked for a better experience. And we were undefeated that year the closest we ever got to getting beat was literally finals day where we tied with cavaliers and it was like <laughs> damn it i mean technically we were unbeaten but we also like kind of half we kind of have like half a ring i guess <laughs> um, 
So, but yeah, that summer was amazing. It was just like the attention to detail and what it does to you physically and mentally and all of that stuff. It was just uh, really helped define many ways how I want to live the rest of my whole life. Uh, and that's and kind I, of uh, that's kind of a full circle moment too. You were talking about the tape that he gave you of the '93 Cadets, where you're listening to them warm up, and in the snare line that year is a guy by the name of Eric Ward who was probably on staff at cadets when you marched. Did he teach that he, summer? He was my snow tech. Dude, Eric Ward yeah. is a name that Mike and I both have heard yeah. very, very many times. Cause he is, uh, went to school, the same university that Mike and I went to Moorhead state university right. and drummed there with the dudes that taught Mike and I, which was Justin Fisher and Chris Logue for me were there. And then Damon Smith, uh, taught, um, Mike, who was also a cadet, and yeah. they all were at Moorhead at the same time, and kind of like passed that like drumming family tree down onto Mike and I. Justin and Chris always referred to Eric Ward as like Yoda. That's what they just like yeah. talked to him about. Just <laughs> like this Yoda. guy who was like well, I drum got Yoda. A, I got a hilarious Eric Ward story that only drum corps people will fully understand and appreciate. So, you know. You're the you're in this top group. We were picking ass all summer, and we were like projected to win. And we thought we were the coolest, and we were just you know as strong as could be. And we have one of those schools where, although it felt like ninety percent of the schools where it's not just that the shower water was cold. It's like almost like they had ice cubes in the water. <laughs> you know, it's like okay, it's the middle of the summer. How is this ice? I don't understand. You know, you remember those showers? Where uh -huh. just, it wasn't in uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, was it? I don't remember where it was, but I just remember thinking, I remember what happened with Eric, but I just remember thinking, like, somebody's doing this on purpose. In the middle of the summer, water should not be this cold. I understand if it's not heated, but this feels like it's literally 10 degrees coming out. <laughs> and it was so cold that it, like, took your breath away. Yep. It was like, you know, it was painful to be in. Like you're so seizing up. <laughs> Yeah, like the snare line that year, it was kind of was similar to a baseline. You know how baseline sometimes they'll walk in order, sit in order, sleep in order. They'll do all that stuff. And the snare line was kind of like that. We were around each other all the time. We were such good friends, and we just had such a blast at. And again, I thank God this is a uh, drum corps podcast because this would be a weird thing to say out in public. <laughs> but me and the other nine guys in the snare line would go shower together, and um, we would. We were we couldn't bring ourselves to get in the water, and it became like this funny thing where we were like, "Can't do it, can't do it, can't do it." And then in comes Eric Ward, and he goes, "What's your guys' problem?" And we're like, "This water, man, you're this is insane. We can't do this." And then he starts looking. Now we knew he was kind of messing with us, but he had that he was not even smirking, not even smiling. He goes, "He goes, this is the same reason you guys have issues in Movement Two at Letter B." It's because of this kind of stuff. And we're just like, oh, God, here we go. Right. <laughs> Anyways, he goes, he goes, he goes, watch and learn. And he stares at us. This sounds so weird. I can't believe I'm saying this. He stares at us while he takes his clothes off. <laughs> and then he steps into this ice cold shower and just steps into it like it's the warmest thing in the world, beaming at us with his eyes, staring us down and starts to get his bar of soap and clean himself. And he doesn't even flinch. Doesn't even catch his breath. Scrabbing under his pits. Like, yep. yeah, just, just doesn't even affect him at all. And I'll never forget that. I was like, God, <laughs> this guy's crazy. 
I've only met <laughs> Eric Ward one time, and do, do, so I have to ask. I know uh, Evan mentioned Demond Smith earlier. He was a he marched snare drum in '94 um, at the Cadets and was the Moorhead Cat and everything. One of Eric's best friends. Uh, did he was he on tour at all in 2000? Because I know he helped out, like run the Met and kind of teach a little bit in the early 2000s. No, I I don't. I never met him, so no. Okay, all right. I was just curious. Um, yeah, but from what he's told me about Eric, that sounds exactly like something he would do. And I've only met yeah. Eric once at Demond's wedding, so and just from the one time I met him, not surprised at all. And he's just so great. He was just he was kind of the definition of work ethic. I you know one of the first people I ever met that could work really hard at a really high level every single day for the whole summer he was the only i believe the only instructional staff member for the entire corps that was there from the first day of spring training to finals he never went home wow that's almost like uh people like almost have to take a break these days <laughs> they just like all right yeah. I gotta take a break uh mentally but that sounds like him but his personality makes me feel like he would have no problem doing that because every time i met him he's just been like so chill and he just like very blunt but chill like yeah, it just, it just wasn't good, yeah, man. Like, <laughs> so that's a full circle. So you did the cadet thing. You guys tied, won. You won. I mean, you, you, you got a ring. You won. Um, that show, that 2000 cadet show is when I started to kind of shift, actually, from my, like, fandom of Blue Devils towards – like the cadets because i was coming into all these shows after years after they happened i mean i was getting in a band my freshman year like 2003 2004 sophomore and so like i'm kind of going back and like catching up and i'm like seeing this 2000 cadets show and like these quads are playing on the stand and behind the back and the show just is so much fun and there's this production and this back and forth and everybody's like out on the field like pointing at each other like they're trading solos and so like i'm like learning these backstick solos and these little licks that are being passed back and forth from snares and i was just like this is incredible. Uh, and I think Mike had brought this up to me. That moment where the quads are on the stands, was that like something that was thought out? Like, hey, these guys are going to be nasty this summer. We got a bunch of vets. Or were they just like, hey, let's have this moment and they'll figure it out? Well, I back then, the cadets' drum solo standing still was like, what? What do you mean? Like, there was no you, – you're only supposed to march. That's it. March, march, march. And um, the fact that we had, they said, yeah, you're not really going to have dots in the drum solo. We're going to do something called staging, which, again, now sounds hilarious. But back then it was like, what do you mean? And um, I remember in spring training rehearsing it and we would play a piece or, or play something um, like a, a snare solo, like Tim and Andy Akiho would play like a snare bass thing and it would stop. And then there'd be like a tenor guy and then it would stop. And then it'd be like the bass line, and then it would stop, and then it'd be like the snare line, and then silence, and then the tenor thing. And it was all this silence. And it was so awkward. And it was just like, oh my God, this is going to be, what is this? And I remember Tom Unks saying something. I think he was saying something to George Hopkins. I don't know. But they were talking on the field, and they said, what the heck is supposed to happen in between the drum solos, in between the, each individual little snippet? And like George was like, well, I mean, ideally the crowd would clap. <laughs> um, hopefully they applaud. And Tom's like, what if they don't? And George was like, well, then we're screwed. <laughs> um, and then I remember going to the first show and people just freaking out. 
so to answer your question, like, yeah, like they had it all planned, but then you know how it is. Like you can plan everything and then you sit there and watch it. And you're like, Oh, like what the heck? Um, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to work. And the hope, the hope was that some of the spots in between were going to be held together with applause. Hmm. Um, anyways, it worked. That's out. kind of wild. Cause yeah, we've, I mean, I've only ever seen it on video of like DCI Final. finals and the yeah. quads are playing behind the back and the crowd goes nuts. But like you're in a rehearsal setting in the middle of who knows what Arkansas or whatever, and there's nobody there, and you're playing, and there's just like dead silence, and you're like, hear some people backfield counting, and the horns like marching through the thick Arkansas grass, and you're like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's weird, and especially because it was, um, it was setting a precedent, you know, because nothing had been done. There's so much when you go to DCI finals, you're seeing either things that are just rehashed of the same old stuff, or you're seeing the same old stuff, but played at a really high level. And then you're seeing stuff that's never been done, you know? And it's just like, whoa, like if someone were to come out with two gigantic, like, um, half pipes, like blue coats had two gigantic half pipes and start sliding down. them. If they did that now, people would kind of think, what are these guys trying to do? Like blue coats did this a few years ago. Like what's going on. But when blue coats did it, it was like, whoa, they're freaking sliding down this thing. What? Um, <laughs> So even though, you know, what we were doing at the time was like kind of, it was just like, it was not the norm. It was like, we're going to stage it. And then when you're done playing, you're going to walk over here. But as you're walking, like interact with each other. And it was just so completely not at all what drum corps was. Drum corps was, you know, 200 dots. Your cadets are supposed to run all the time. So it was just something totally different, and um, which is one of the reasons I wanted to march there. I felt like they were going to try to do something different, and they did. Well, it's, that's cool. It's, it's funny you talk about it being different because I literally had this conversation with Evan before we added you to the Skype call. We were getting ready to record this. So the Cadets 2000 show is one of the two shows that got me excited about drum corps when I was a kid. Like, so I didn't get into band until I was like 14, and I said I was taught by a cadet, and, an old school cadet, and... The Cadets 2000 and the Cadets 2005 were like the two shows that I geeked out on for years, like all of my formative years. So it's really cool to be able to talk to somebody right now that was in one of those groups. And I, I hadn't watched the 2000 show in quite a while. And so to get ready for this earlier, I went back, found it on YouTube from finals and watched it. And I was like, man, this show is it feels more like a show out of today's drum corps than it does out of that area and out of that era, I guess. And the exact word that I used was it feels like this is staged. Like it, they staged the majority of this show, especially because that drum feature is one of my favorite drum features of all time in drum corps history. And it's just was way ahead of its time, way not the norm for that time period. And I loved that all of it. Like the writing was great. That quad feature, just like I wasn't even a quad player. And, and I think along the lines, to go on the lines of what Evan asked about how that feature kind of evolved, did it take those quad players the whole summer to make that nails? Or was it kind of one of those things where they just like had it from the get-go after they wrote it? Well, I you know, it's hard to answer because, let me put it this way. So, um, there was a, have you ever heard the name Chris Vale? Yes. Yes. So, I marched with Chris. I stood right next to him. Oh, no, I didn't. He was on the other side. He was third in on the other side. Like, I was third in on, on one side. And we, you know, became friends. He, that was his second year in the cadets. He ended up marching five years in the snare line there. And then he taught 05 through 08, I think it was. I forget. But um, 
He was he, there when I auditioned. I know that. Okay, yeah, real tall guy. And he, um, after, you know, all those years went by and I was uh, living on the East Coast, which we'll get to, but he actually um, told me, he was like, you just marched one year, just 2000. I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, that doesn't really count. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Why would that not count? And he said, because we had fun every day. We were good every day. There was no bad days. That's not a normal cadet year. That's not a normal drum corps year. So you definitely marched and you have a DCI ring, but I wouldn't say you really marched the cadets. And he's, he's joking, but, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, he's, I mean, again, like I don't have any other frame of reference other than that one year in terms of the cadets. And, but yeah, we had, so to answer your question about the quads, it's like, yeah, they had to work out ticks all summer and they made adjustments and they added and took away whatever. But I don't ever remember us playing like bad. You know, mm-hmm. I just remember it just being like, man, that was the best rep we've ever had. Like every <laughs> one rep of those was years. The best one. Yeah, it was really <laughs> weird. And I and I was naive and oblivious to it. So I just kind of soaked it in. I just I remember finals night when, you know, we're marching that last set and I we hit that last note. I just remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, like we played everything perfect. Now, regardless of whether that's true or not, because it's not true, but that's what it felt like. And I had wanted to feel that. And I didn't feel like I was being fooled. I just felt like, man, we just had the best show we could ever have. Like, oh, my God, that was so awesome. Do you Um, have the drum tapes? (laughs) No, I've never heard it in my life. Oh, Oh, no. If anyone listening to this has the finals cadets drum tape from 2000 all of us would appreciate listening to it <laughs> i'm not surprised yeah, do you have, got, didn't uh, they put them on the dvds that year uh no they did um that was the first year that you could choose which camera to look at uh, um, so like uh, it was 2000 was the first time you could watch do like multi or high cam or whatever yeah high cam multi-cam percussion cam guard cam um, and not the camera let one year they put cameras on the judges heads. Um, <laughs> it was very weird, but, um, but I do have a couple judges tapes that I can try to send you guys the file to so you can check out. It's pretty cool. One of them is Alan Christensen in San Antonio. And, um, it's pretty cool. He's just like screaming. He's just like, Oh God, ah! and then when the, cats, <laughs> when the claws oh. do their solo, he just screams, Holy moly. Um, Dude, I love it's those tapes. Cool. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I have a collection going of uh, tapes from. Yeah, he has actually, a... somebody messaged me the tape and or the other day, and he was like, "Hey, I, I heard you got like some tapes." It's like I was a drug hookup or something. <laughs> He's like, "Hey, man, uh, somebody told me that you got that you got the drum tapes from this year." I'm like, "Yeah, I do." <laughs> you got, have, I got do that. you happen to have um, Charlie Poole from Allentown '97 Blue Devils? I do actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I've heard that tape many times. It's Ooh, like tighter 15, than a cat. <laughs> yeah, tighter than a cat's butt. It's like fifteen <laughs> files that are all like six seconds long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh man. Yeah, it's pretty great, but uh, yeah. So when that when I aged out, I was just like, I mean, that feeling is something you're just you're searching. In my opinion, most people that march at that level, almost any level, but especially that level, they 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 search for that feeling the rest of their whole lives, forever. Yeah, you know, I remember. I remember mine. I know. Yeah, you experience that level of achievement, and I think your goal, your standard, becomes that. With whatever else you do, honestly. Yeah. Yep. And then that's what it's been ever since, and um, it's been sometimes to a fault. It's it's been 
it's hurt a couple times because I do it so much, but, mm-hmm. um, like, uh, yeah, but it's been great. It's been, it's been a crazy ride. So you aged out, uh, you end up teaching, going back to the home team, teaching for, uh, a couple years, right? Oh, one Oh two Pacific crest. Um, then you move out East at some point. What? Okay. So here's a, this is another interesting story. Um, I taught, I moved back. I'm not moved back. I, I go home to San Diego. I was living in San Diego. I grew up in LA, but I was living in San Diego. And I go back to college. I'm teaching Pacific Crest 0102. And I, um, and by then, I had started this um, uh, this company with this insanely weird name called the Procrastinators. Um, <laughs> I know it's very weird, but. Um, me and uh, this guy named Matt Ramey, who was in the pit at Pacific Crest in 99, and another guy named Chris Doolittle. I definitely recommend you putting his name down in the in the collection of age outs you are interviewing that are kind of on the business side of things, like me. Um, have you heard of sticktape.com? Yeah. He owns sticktape.com. Oh, sweet. Okay, so he and he was also in the snare line at Pacific Crest in 99. So he and I became very close. We marched at San Diego State University's marching band together. And then we start this little trio, drumming trio, banging on pots and pans, doing like corporate gigs, playing at malls in San Diego. Just like the kind that you would see like a trash can trio at Disneyland, that kind of thing, you know. And um, in San Diego, there's so many corporate events and parties there that there's booking agencies like crazy. And we start getting booked like constantly in San Diego. So when I aged out cadets, I moved back to San Diego and this was like the young, early twenties bachelor dream couple years. I was performing in these random gigs with this, with this trio with Chris Doolittle. And we, he and I lived together in a one bedroom apartment on the beach in San Diego, like open the door, <laughs> step in sand. Um, I was, I was going to school and I was excelling at everything school had to offer with the exception of academics, which I will get into a little later. So I was failing hard in college, hard, like so hard that it had to have been on purpose, you know? And we were, I taught a couple drum lines. Indoor was becoming a thing. It was like, oh, I heard RCC has an indoor drum line. No way, no way. So uh, we should do indoor drum line. I was helping produce percussion shows at theme parks. Did one at Legoland. Um, <laughs> nice. It was a crazy, I, again, like that whole cadet drum corps high level thing. I was like, I'm going to max this out. And things were going really well. Top Pacific Crest, 0102. Then in 2003, I was like, okay, I suck at college. I don't think I can do this. I'm going to drop out. So I dropped out of college. Then there's this group in New Hampshire called Recycled Percussion. These are three drummers and a DJ. They did 200 plus shows a year all over the country on tour. Wow. All of them at colleges. None of them, not only were none of these drummers marching guys, none of them were even trained. None of them could read music. And... But they were so they were making really good money and entertaining. Yeah, they were touring the country, doing a 45 minute to an hour long theater style show uh, at colleges. And I'm like, whoa, like this could be amazing. And they offer me a job to be their tour manager, booking agent and a sub. And I had they said, you can 
we'll help you move out here. I had to move to Southern New Hampshire. <laughs> That's quite a drastic shift from Southern California. You almost can't go further. It was unbelievable. And um, I moved there. My first real winter ever was in New Hampshire, of all places. It was painful. Was that so, the first snow you ever saw in your life? No. I mean, we got a lot of snow in the mountains here in Southern California. Like, I, in the winter right now, I could drive an hour and a half to the mountains, and I'll be in, you know, 10 inches of snow and go snowboarding. Okay. There's great snowboarding down here. Uh, a lot of people here go snowboarding and surfing the same day. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's great. Excuse me. It's crazy. So anyways, I, I joined that recycled percussion group in New Hampshire and I tour for two years with them and I'm touring all over, all over the country and, uh, making money as a drummer professionally. And that is, um, I leave Southern California right when everything's the very beginning stages of the whole SoCal marching scene starts to happen. I'll bail. Um, <laughs> So it's weird, you know, part of me thinks it was like, at the time, it was like, well, there's not really a lot of marching activity in Southern California. Like, now that's hilarious. But back then, there wasn't. Um, and this is something that no one was doing. I, I'm going to go do it. So I went and I did it. And I did it for two years. And um, we played at the, I'm trying to think if I left anything out because I'm about to transition to something else. <laughs> um, we played a show at the University of Pittsburgh. And... Let's see. My wife's not here to to correct me when I tell the, the my side of the story. So I think I'll just go all out with it. Um, <laughs> that sounds like the best the best yeah. case scenario. Well, in all honesty, I was we performed at the University of Pittsburgh. I was on stage, and um, after our shows, we had a merch booth, and people would come and buy DVDs and CDs and shirts, and some people would ask for autographs, you know, that kind of thing. And anyways, um, this girl came up and said she wanted to meet me. And so we met, and um, the the short version of that story is that's who I'm now married to. She and, was uh, uh, enthralled with your drumming ability. Yeah, she was like, man, there's only one guy up there that knows how to do backsticking and plays really accurate rhythms on his uh, different diddle passages. No, no one. Was she no, a music, she, music person at all or in the music game at all? I mean, she played violin in high school, so okay. not really. Oh. Um, which is, is kind of refreshing in a way, you know what I mean? Cause like, she's not interested in hearing about, I mean, she's interested, but like, that's not the kind of conversations we have, which is kind of nice. You know what I mean? It's kind of refreshing, but yeah, so sure. that was in Oh five. And, um, we, uh, uh, things got, no, sorry. We met in, oh, sorry. When I was on the road, we met in Oh three and we kept in touch for a couple years and things got really serious. And we, it was like a long-term relationship long distance relationship then in 2005 i uh the, my contract with the band came to an end and it was not going to be worth it and the my biggest leap of faith i've ever had in my whole life was everything with this girl seems like the real deal and she is from some town called mechanicsburg which i thought she was joking and she <laughs> called me the name like mechanicsburg like car mechanics she goes well that's how it's spelled but yeah and I mean, I I, yeah, that's funny now because, like, obviously I've heard of Mechanicsburg because of percussion and Winter Guard. But, like, if I had no, like, background with that at all, like, WGI, like, seeing this high school listed on, like, WGI finishes, that somebody told me that, like, Mechanicsburg, you're like, what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I, uh, I said, I'm going to move to where you are. I want to see where this, where this goes. So I moved there in 05. We got in, so we kind of started 
we met in 03, started dating in the 04-ish area, and then and moved to Mechanicsburg in 05. 06, we got engaged. 07, we got married. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. But um, when I got to Mechanicsburg in 05, um, th- there was a march. There was two high schools, Cumberland Valley High School and Mechanicsburg High School. And I did whatever research I could on Google at the time, which wasn't much. You know, this is 15 years ago. Um, I just I found the names of two people and I emailed them both the same thing. Hey, I'm March Cadets. I'd love to help teach a drumline. And uh, one guy wrote back and it was Jim Weaver at Mechanicsburg High School. And I started teaching there in June of 2005. And I was there until April of 2018. And when I got there, we had no indoor program at all. There was nothing. And that's uh, wild. By the wow. time I left, it was, you know, we had done a lot of really, we had done a lot, including one silver medal in A class. So it's pretty cool. Nice. Pretty legit. And yeah. then you also, in your time, I guess, met a lot of people and were involved with a lot of groups that we had friends with uh, Cadets Winter Percussion, United Percussion, which obviously we know Dan Shack, Travis Peterman, Tom Gasparini, like all those dudes, uh, Sarah yeah. Fabian, like all those people from like that area. Um, which is pretty wild. It's a whole yeah. So it was oh five, six, seven, eight. You know, Mechanicsburg started to kind of the indoor thing was happening. Drumline was getting better. Blah blah blah. All that stuff was happening, and then um, Chad Moore, the director of United Percussion, was also a judge in the band circuit, and he reached out to me and said, "Hey man, I really love the stuff you're doing in Mechanicsburg. Would you be interested in being on staff with us at United?" And I was like, hell yeah, because at this point, so this was like, oh, wait, at this point, things in Southern California had exploded. And I was just like, oh, my God, I cannot believe I moved away. I could have been doing, <laughs> you know, like I remember in 2001 when I was teaching Pacific Press, the snare tech, I remember standing there having conversations with John Mapes about, you know, defining heights and all these things because he was teaching like 98 schools and like. <laughs> you know, writing for 4,000 groups and he was really trying to you know find his way and just define how he does that we've known each other 20 years and um so what you're you saying know, is you can help us get john mapes on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean yeah, well i can definitely tell john john you know he he's um he is a guy that he's an outlier in that he only ever marched Pacific Crest in 2000, but he approaches, even though he never technically was in like a top three DCI or WGI group ever, he is maxes out everything at a high level. It's um, inspiring to be around. But, I mean, the proof is in the proof is just right there for. I mean, yeah. they've been just building this juggernaut of a program, which is another topic. But for now, it's just an absolute dynasty of an era of a program all around what him and Ian Grom have done there. Just, yeah. but yeah, but, which is in a sidebar is also one of my funniest things. Like when I catch his comments or responses to stupid things that internet trolls say on like their Instagram videos that people post of Chino Hills or this or that, if somebody, some idiot will say something. He's like, Oh yeah, totally. Like, <laughs> like totally yeah. yeah. Cause no one, you know, no one was here for the decade plus of him, uh, working through the mud, you know, like no one was watching anything. They just see Chino Hills. Now he's been there 20 years. I mean, it's not like they were awesome. The day he showed up, Yeah, he had to figure it out. And 
Yeah. So, you know, John is one of those guys I knew from here, from living in California. And, but when I was living in Mechanicsburg, teaching United Percussion really expanded things a lot because they were in, they're technically in Jersey, but they're in the Philly area. And that's like three, four hours from where I lived. And it was just a whole nother crew of drummers. Um, and then in 08, I helped teach at the cadets. And then, um, yeah, just it just so happens that a bunch of the people that were involved, that were members of United during that time, went on to are now these major players. Like especially Travis and Dan, and like T Gas, like they were all in the snare line when I was the snare tech. Um, so it's just trippy to see. And like, did I, you teach at United in the in the year two thousand eleven? Uh, that was my last year. What, what, was that the year <laughs> they were wearing all white? Uh, I don't know, but that's the year they marched with us. I read the yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I was there after they bailed. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry about know, that. Like that was no no no. That's it's funny you say that because that was one of the things that created a bond between me and those three guys is because I was I didn't really demonize them for that. I mean, I was selfishly bummed, but I was also like I was at Pacific Crest and I bailed to go march in the cadets it's like who the hell is going to tell me i was a bad choice you know what i mean it's yeah like, yeah not no offense to pacific crest but there's a there's a deadline for me and there's a deadline for those guys and it's like how about uh let let their last couple years of being able to march let it be about them you know why not um, yeah and it t gas had come from from the yeah, start but yeah he was there our, day one our initial audition was not a typical turnout for the talent as far as like rhythm x goes we had the year before we had eight guys age out so the only vet was me oh wow um and so like i was like sitting there talking to tom was like hey you're really good like what's uh, what's the deal and he's like oh we got these other dudes so like me and somebody else are like messaging dan and travis like hey you guys should come audition and they're like, well, we went to United and audition, and I was like, well, did they give you a contract? And he was like, no. I was like, all right, you better yeah. come. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think it was. I think Josh Bricky, the snare tech, reached out to both of them. Tom reached out to both. Evan messaged both. I had spent the summer at Blue Stars, um, marching for Tom right next to Travis all summer. Oh, cool. So I'm. I called him and was like, hey, you guys need to come do this. <laughs> um, you know what? Uh, before I forget, you mentioned. I forget which one of you mentioned, but you said. You know, this is the only guy that uh, we've interviewed that we've never met, but I'm sure we've been in the same place at the same time pretty often. So I watching Blue Stars warm up with Travis in the snare line and I zoomed way in on him with my phone and took a picture of him and then texted him the picture. And I said, is there any way to get your drum any lower? <laughs> Dude, you don't even know. It, it took an the entire man. I've never hit the drum harder than i did that summer that was it was fun and it, it dude it was i don't even know how to describe it like the weight <laughs> the of drums our entire, low. dude my drum was at, my low, it was at my knees it was at my knees yeah i mean his drum i i honestly thought that like it might be better for the equipment if he just put the harness upside down and wore it around his legs because <laughs> it was so close to the ground i was like why don't do you, you have to get like special j bars for that Man, I mean, this is crazy. But thinking back on it, honestly, they were so low. Like the drums, gonna we had to, we had to we had to take the feet off the drums because they were so low. We had really hard drills, so a lot of really big step sizes that summer frequently. <laughs> so we racked our if we didn't march properly, like we racked our knees on our drums oh, yeah. all the time. 
And thinking about it now, like I really don't know how we did it. If I'm being honest, you know, I am, I am, uh, what's the word? A digital hoarder. So like, I don't have a lot of stuff in my, well, I try not to have a lot of physical things laying around. It drives me crazy, but anything that's digital, I have way too much of. And I, I probably still have that picture on my hard drive somewhere. (laughs) I will find it because it's hilarious. But yeah, you know, all those people I connected to United, um, have really come into play now. And then, so the next thing that happened uh, was in 2009, Matt Altmeyer, um, who was the tenor tech at Pacific Crest when I marched, he called me, God, it was 10 years later in 2009, and said, hey, Brian, I really want you to come to Pacific Crest. Matt was the uh, caption at the time. And a quick side note about the whole degrees of separation so Matt Altmeyer was a tenor tech at Pacific Crest in 99. That's how I know him. He called me in 2009 to come back to Pacific Crest. Matt Altmeyer also marched in the 1992 Vanguard tenor line right next to Colin McNutt. Dang. And he marched with Murray Gussick. You know, he was in that line with... Uh, Legendary. Yeah, so it's just kind of funny how that works out. And um, anyways, he... Um, I, and so the fall of 09, I, I went to auditions. I They flew me from... Pennsylvania to California, and that started a five-year stint with PC. I taught there 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. And I went from like a secondary snare tech all the way up to like, what did they call me, battery manager or battery caption head or something. And during those times, I ended up meeting an enormous amount of people that ended up going on. And like Henry Gillard, for example, he went on to do stuff. Matt Ponce went on to do a lot of stuff. And um you know, there's these are guys, you know, a lot of pit people. I met Eileen. Uh, well, she was Eileen Chen at the time, back when I was marching PC. First year, a couple years teaching PC. Now she's Jim Wunderlich's wife. Oh, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. I know Jim. So, I don't. Yeah. His wife's Eileen. So we knew each other from PC way back. And yeah, it's just, you know, you those five years at PC and then the years at United and then teaching at Mechanicsburg, you know, you're just always developing this network of people and, you know, that whole saying about people really remember how you made them feel absolutely comes into play because um, when opportunities come up, people either think of you or you think of them and it can end up being really beneficial for everybody. If there's just a lot of positive experiences or growth with all those connections. And um, the other the other thing I was involved with that was really huge was the Army All-American Marching Band. Have you ever heard of that? Do you know what that is? Yep, I've heard of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, there's this, technically doesn't even exist anymore, but there was this thing called the All-American Football, All-American Bowl, and the Army was the main sponsor, so it was called the Army All-American Bowl. And every January, like the first or second Saturday in January, I can't remember, there was a bowl game at the Alamo Dome in San Antonio, and it was um, high school senior. So it was basically a nationwide high school all-star game, all seniors. And, like, Drew Brees played in it, and, like, Matt Liner, like, big people who went on to do these big things. So it was kind of a big deal. It was shown on ESPN, the whole thing. And the whole idea was all these football players, they don't have to pay to go. The, the Army pays for it. And they're brought there. It's just, you know, a gigantic commercial for the Army. But there's a big football game that's part of it. And after a few years of it being successful, they decided to add an Army All-American marching band where they would hold auditions um, 
online and they would fly these kids out for a week. They, they would get there on Monday or Tuesday. They would learn drill all week for like an eight minute show, seven minute show. They're supposed to show up with their music memorized. And then Saturday they have one halftime performance and they're done. Season's over. So it's like a six day season. And <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. It existed for 13 years. Uh, no, 11 years. I did the first seven and then I did the last one, the 11th. And it sounds like I did it for eight years, but I really did it for eight weeks because it's just one week each time. Um, yeah, yeah. Not, but they would bring yeah. in these crazy huge names like, you know, Dave Hall at Nebraska. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Dave Hall was the percussion guy. Jeff Prospery was the percussion guy. Caleb Rothy did it one year. I mean, big, big names in the marching world would do it. And I got asked to be a part of it as an instructor and like logistics guy and um, a ton of people came through that. There was a guy named Matt Keown. I don't know if you know him. His dad I've is I've seen Alan the name. Keown. Yeah, I've seen the name on like Facebook or something like that. But yeah. I don't know. Well, Matt was in the he was in the snare lineup in that Army All American band. That's how I met him. But he was in the Blue Devil snare line, and then he went on to get a doctorate in percussion at Yale. So <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. He's like one of those guys. He's like crazy chops on every percussion instrument possible. He I think he was in. Um, he was like in the top couple, two or three of INE when he marched Blue Devils, back when INE was like a really enormous big deal. Not so, quite yeah, as much just, anymore. Not at all. Well, there's just not as many people. It's like you get like these Blue Devil Vanguard guys and then you get like a slew of other open class people. So it's just not, you know, before there used to be like 30 snare drummers and they were all from the top four drum corps. You know, it was crazy. Um, anyway, so... Those, I would say, you know, teaching PC, teaching at United, RML American thing, and then also just being in Mechanicsburg for 13 years, you just really develop a ton of connections and learn an enormous amount about teaching and about relationships and about writing. Uh, I wrote a lot of shows. Um, actually, I was one of Box Six's first customers. Um, Box Six. Yeah, the, yeah at Mechanicsburg, wild. we were like, Man, we suck at designing shows. Good God. what You know what I mean? And back then, there was like, what are you going to do? If you suck, you suck. If you got to try to get better. And then John comes out with this thing, Box 6. Hey, buy a show from us, and it won't suck. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's a great idea. Um, so we Fantastic idea. And they're good. Yeah, so we did it for like, oh, God, four years, something like that, maybe five. And the next to last year, second to last year, in the fall, I had seen a video of Chino Hills High School doing a show called Tribal Effect. This was a marching band show. And I was like, that is freaking awesome. Like, John, would you be willing to convert this into an indoor drumline show? And him and Ian were like, yeah, that's great. Let's do it. So we did a box six show that had never been done before by anyone. Um, that's pretty. That's a pretty unique scenario. Because yeah, a lot of them fun. now have definitely been done by a lot of people. Yeah, it was really cool. And we actually won the silver medal in A-class with that show. Boom. Um, Nailed yeah, it. it was pretty awesome. Yeah, we almost won the whole thing, but we had a snare drummer trip over himself and tick like crazy in the <laughs> snare solo. Oh, man. It's a bad time. Ugh. Yeah, especially with Scott Johnson judging. Yeah. Because <laughs> all, all he cares about is the ticks. Yep. Well, he, well I mean, I don't, I won't, I won't, I don't want to say that out loud, but I will say he will see and hear it better than most <laughs> yeah um, well yeah i don't want to say all he cares about is the ticks but he definitely is like and at that point in the year you're talking you're talking the end of the year you can't really judge someone on what it's supposed to be but what it actually is yeah so totally. you're like well 
didn't happen. So, <laughs> yeah, man. So, um, yeah, so I, I'm still writing shows now. I'm writing, uh, I wrote three fall shows. I'm writing two indoor shows. One of them is going to Dayton. So that's kind of exciting. Nice. Um, nice. Yeah, I'll be so, at Dayton. <laughs> yeah, You'll well, be at Dayton. Uh, I'll be there too, actually. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I guess, yeah. and that's kind of like, I guess what I was talking to you about before, like earlier on, like we've all been in the, a lot of the similar places and I guess that'll be a good segue too for like what you're, what you've got going on now with your, your work gig and all that. Um, you are, and I'm going to try and not butcher this, but your <laughs> title is the artist relation manager for Zildjian and Vic Fur. So right. you work and correspond and communicate with I'm assuming all the groups in marching percussion that use Vic Firth and Zildjian products. Yeah, well, and or Zildjian. And um, or, yeah. So it doesn't have to be both. It would be one or the other or both. Ideally, it should be both, in my opinion. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so that was crazy how that happened. So I, like most people, was um, destined to do marching percussion for my whole life. And I tried so, or just percussion. I tried so many ways to do it. Um, we were talking, sharing notes earlier about something called coast to coast performance. That was like a drumline camp. As many drumlines as there are that come to WGI finals or are in Texas or that go to BOA, there's infinitely more of them that are god awful and have no guidance, zero. Um, the the ones we know about are like a tiny fraction of all the drum lines that exist. So I had this camp idea where someone, a band director could hire band director who doesn't have a drum line instructor, can't afford one, can't get one. They could hire me and my staff people to go to um, their school and give them like a two, one, two, three day intensive drum line camp that would leave them with like a warm up routine, a tuning scheme, head stick choices, mallet choices, um, a, a cadence, a couple of those stand grooves, because most drum lines and most marching bands are like college marching bands. They're, they exist for the football team. And um, guys like us don't want to teach those lines. And um, so then those lines are left out to dry. So I tried that, giving them something. It was kind of successful for a little bit, but it was hard to maintain. And so we, when we had our first child, I had three kids, and when our first one was born in 09, man, the things change when you have those little eyes looking up at you and you're like, Oh God, life like, changes. I got to provide for this person. Like I got to stop, you know, screwing around. Like, <laughs> like I can, I can like, you know, penny pinch and dig into the couch cushions and try to make this work. But we have another human being that is like totally, it's not up. It's not their fault that we are in whatever situation we're in. So I, I told you I had dropped out of college. I decided to go back to college. So I was in my thirties, married working full-time had one child we had another one on the way and i decided to go back to school when i went full-time and it was insanely painful so i got my bachelor's degree and when that was done i went back and got my master's degree in higher education administration which is like wow bizarre twist in this whole story <laughs> and um i ended up working in college admissions for almost five years so I became one of those guys where I was like, all right, well, I'm married. I have a family. I have a straight job, nine to five, Monday through Friday. And then I have this drum line that I teach and I want them to be really good. I was like, that's going to be, that's going to be my life. I'm going to have Mechanicsburg. I'm going to make them, instead of teaching four or five schools and writing for a hundred, I'm going to 
work with just one and have a full-time job to support my family. And I'm going to make Mechanicsburg freaking epic. And it was great. It was kind of going really nice. I worked at a couple different schools. My last one was Messiah College in um, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. And it was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Now, this entire time, I aged out of the cadets, and I was approached by Neil Larravee and asked if I wanted to join the Vic Firth education team. And I said, hell yes. So I signed my little endorsement deal and I, in 2001, and I was a member of it this whole time. So I was teaching. I was working with Vic Firth groups. I was staying connected to Vic Firth. I was just connected the whole time. Then comes 2016, and I get an email to my Gmail account. And um, it's from the Vic Firth education team. Hey, we are hiring a position for marching artist relations manager to cover both the Zildjian and Vic Firth brands. And most people know this now, but Zildjian purchased Vic Firth in 2010. And then they started operating as a single company in like 2016. And I was like, wait, what's this job? And I start reading it and I start to freak out. I'm just like, oh, my God, this is like a dream job, you know, like artist relations. And I'm just going to work with with these people directly like this could be unbelievable. So I call my wife and uh, of course she was like, you have to do it. You, you, you have to apply for this job. This is too good to be true. That's an awesome wife. Oh, dude, she's an 11 like on a scale of one to 10. She's it's crazy. Um, she's like, you got to apply. So I email them and I say, and I say, Neil, this job. Holy crap. And Neil always laughs. He always says it felt like I replied to the email before he hit send. That's how quickly <laughs> I replied. And um, and I said, this job sounds amazing. And he kind of told me about it. And I said, I just need to know what does it pay and do I have to move? Because they're based in Boston. And he said, you got to talk to HR. So I talked to, I connected with HR and they said, this is what it pays and you don't have to move. You can work in Pennsylvania. And I was like, oh my God. So I apply, and the long story long story short is, I found out later me and about a, a country's worth of people also applied, and I got the gig, and they were looking for someone that. And now that you guys have heard this exhausting story about me, which I apologize, I get I'm full of hot air, I, I get wordy. Um, <laughs> They were looking for someone. Wordy that is good. Wordy is good on a podcast. I mean, all they're doing is listen to us talk. So yeah, it's all good. It's way um, better than quiet. <laughs> that's true. What a podcast of silence. Um, uh, they were looking for someone that had marched in a high level marching percussion group. They were looking for someone who had taught marching percussion, drum corps, and WGI both at a high level. Check, someone check. who had built a program. Uh, a scholastic program in marching percussion. And I'm like, okay, I check all those boxes, but so do I and about a thousand other people, right? And like, but we also want someone with a high level of education that has professional experience with recruiting. <laughs> and I, had, I have a master's degree in higher education administration. And I worked in college admissions for five years. I like crapped myself. I was like, are you kidding me? You're like, I couldn't chances? have set myself up any better. Yeah, this job <laughs> yeah, is so. meant for me. Yeah, man, it was it was unbelievable. And uh, I, I applied and I you know, got interviews pretty quickly and I went through the whole process. And when it was it was coming down to the final candidacy period, the week of PASIC, 
Um, you know, I had no reason to go to PASIC. I worked at a college and taught one drum line. So I didn't really have, I wasn't a PASIC. And, but I had a million friends that were a PASIC. And I had a lot of friends that worked for a lot of these other companies also at PASIC. And my phone starts blowing up with text messages. They start saying like, hey, man, we got Neil. We got people from Zildjian and Vic asking about you. They're, they just want to hear what kind of person you are. And at that moment, the whole, you know, don't burn bridges and have positive experiences with everyone you, you interact. It all came into play right on that day because everybody vouched for me. And That's awesome. It was, it was unbelievable. I, I don't ever feel like I deserved it in any way. And I'm blessed every single day. And then when they called and offered me the job, I completely freaked. I was like super excited. And my very first day was December 12th, 2016. And it was, I mean, it has been a crazy three years. It has been, the, the company has gone through so much, so much changes. The industry is going through so many changes. Um, but uh, that's how I got the job. But, but yeah, like I, um, anyone that uses those brands in marching percussion and, you know, I'm, my job is to try to just connect with as many educators and artists as possible that we feel have a similar set of values as, as we do as the Zildjian and Vic family of brands, like goals and values and all that. Like, wow, we really meet eye to eye. We should work together. Let us help you pursue your creative outlet and educational outlet through our resources and our products. And you help us by promoting our brand. So people buy it. Um, and it's been a thrill to do that. And I'm very lucky that Zildjian is one of the brands. Cause that's basically everyone. <laughs> yeah. I was actually doing some scrolling through the websites, obviously just because you can go up artists like blah, blah, blah. And I was just looking down through, Obviously, Vic Firth has a lot of the signature sticks, which is just almost like a DCI Hall of Fame of who's who. Hanum, Tom Monks, Tom Float, Ike Jackson, Mike Jackson, Ralph Hardiman, Roger Carter, Gussick, Mapes, Bettis, McNutt, Bachman. You're just like, oh, my gosh. I was reading through. I was like, man, I forgot all these people have these sticks. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and then, like, on the Zildjian side, you're just, like, looking down to, like, the artists that, like, use Zildjian symbols, not only on, like, the marching side, but just, like, some of the drum set artists and Boring stuff like that. And on the, and on the Vic first side, some of the people that use like Vic Firth artists. And I'm just like, this is nuts. Um, yeah. And actually the funny thing is that website is like six months old and it's like 10% filled on the amount of artists. We, we are still working to get it all up. But if you were to look at DCI, for example, and look at the world-class drum cores, there's 25, I think 24, world-class course and 22 are Zildjian. And then you have all the WGI groups, which the group yeah. that I work with cap city is one that uses Zildjian. Yep. Um, so yeah, sweet. I, I think yeah. we got all, our, I think we got all so, our stuff though. I'm not in charge of that, but <laughs> <laughs> so since we kind of got into the, the whole job you do now thing, I have to ask what, I guess, have you met anybody famous through this new job? Like, I mean like big picture famous, not even just in the marching community. Um, we have this video series, um, well, I don't know if it's a series, but it's called VF Jams and Zildjian Live that we record in January. Dude, those are sick. Yeah, yep. they're awesome. And, um, I, they're all filmed, literally all of them are filmed on one day and, uh, we, we released them slowly throughout the year. And I remember 
um, I got to, because I live in California, I got to go to the recording of it at East West Studios in LA, in Hollywood. And, you know, we're doing recording sessions. Then it's like, all right, we're going to take a lunch break. And we got pizzas for everybody. And I remember we were sitting there watching a uh, playoff game, uh, NFL playoff game in like the break room or something of the studio. And I'm sitting there eating pizza. And to my right is Peter Erskine. And to my left is Steve Smith from Journey. And I was just <laughs> Steve thinking Smith, myself, dude. Oh, my what gosh. What is happening right now? This Jeez. is so weird. And, um, you know, stuff like that happens a lot. Like Aaron Spears, you know, there's a lot of, there's so many drummers and Travis Barker. And I mean, they're just, the list kind of just continues. It never really stops. One of my, one of my tops and my personal like favorites that I just I love listening is Benny Greb. And I just love Benny Greb so much. Yeah. He, so we were, when we were doing the VF jams, he did last, he did 2018. He didn't do 2019, but he was in town for Nam. So he came to the 2019 taping, but he came like in the middle of it and they were rehearsing something. And uh, he, he, and he sat down right next to me. And I was thinking like this freaking Benny Greb right there. Dude. Um, so nasty. Yeah. And, oh, and also awesome. just East West studios where we did the recording, like, you know, the Beatles were recorded there. And I remember like, uh, you know, this is the t- a total drummer moment. I was like, wow, this is the studio where the Beatles recorded songs. That's incredible. And then later in the day, I had to go to the bathroom, and I went into the bathroom, and I looked at the toilet. I'm like, dude, I wonder if Ringo peed in this toilet. <laughs> like, is this the same toilet? Uh, I Paul McCartney took a poop right there. Like, I mean, it's possible. You know? Well, we've know. peaked. We can't do any better than that with this episode. We're just going to close <laughs> it out. See you later, folks. <laughs> no, that's hilarious. Oh, my gosh. So you – I think a lot of people, too, see – the epitome of the activity, which is probably what Vic Firth and Zildjian want to promote, obviously, because there's these high-level groups working with these great products that are produced by this company. That's what you guys want. Like, yeah, we want you to see, oh, the Boston Crusaders and the Carolina Crowns and this group using this and this group using that. Um, but I'm assuming that that's probably not even the busiest time. Do you get a lot of stuff? Like, do you do a lot of with the BOA scene and the WGI scene as well? Well, you're right that it's it's all 12 months of the year. There's a lot going on. Um, but for me, the busiest time is January through DCI finals because that's when I travel the most. Okay. So um, to answer your question, we are um, equally involved with WGI and DCI. So like the approach is identical. Technically, we spend less money on WGI, but that's really just because WGI groups have four or five free days every week. You know what I mean? So like they're just not using the product as much. So they don't use as much product, but the all in is the same. So we provide product and, and support in a variety of ways to an enormous amounts, enormous amount of groups. Um, yeah. And we promote the groups, the artists, the educators, along with our products like crazy. Um, the whole Vic Firth in the lot thing, you know, that's um, that's something that's, geez, if there was ever a way for you to talk to Mark Wessels on this thing, I don't know when he would ever have time. But Mark Wessels is anyone from any company, competitors or not, would tell you he's one of the biggest innovators. And um, him and Neil Larrabee, I would say those two are two of the guys that have just defined how a lot of things are done. But what does I'm, Mark do? 
So Mark Wessel, he's what the heck is his title now? Uh, speaking of change, he's the he's director of content and education strategy for the whole company. But he got hired by Vic Firth in I think it was 2000. And to give you an idea of how ahead of its time it was and how long ago it was, all I have to do is tell you the title he was given when he was hired. His title when he was hired in 2000, and this is hilarious, was Director of Internet. (laughs) (laughs) Which is hysterical now, but at the time, Mark (laughs) Wessels was like, like, who who in the drumline world 20 years ago had any kind of clue on how to build a website? Because they sure as heck didn't have great software. It was all coding. It was nothing easy about it. And he knew how to do it. And he was a guy who said, I got a great idea. Why don't we film drumline warmups and then put the videos on VicFirth.com? People from all over the world want to see these drumlines in the lot. And they never get to because they never go to shows. Because there was no YouTube. It didn't exist back then. There was no the YouTube Vic at all. VicFirth Video Vault. Yeah. I can vividly remember sitting at my computer in my family room waiting six hours for a Cadets 2001 in the lot yeah. tape to, to load on the Vic Firth video box. That dial of yeah, life. Yep, that is Mark Wessels and Neil Larrabee making it come to life. Those two guys. And Mark, you know, it was it was genius. I mean, now it seems kind of silly, but it, it was, and that's why he keeps taking to the level. When you just look at the views we have, the number of views we have on our in the lot uh, YouTube videos, and compared to you know other ones, it's in the, <laughs> some of them are in hundreds and hundreds of thousands, and you know it's great, and we're able to promote the products and the the, the artistry of the groups, and it promotes the educator and the artist themselves, and um, so we try to do a lot with that. But to answer your question, yeah, DCI. And WGI are just different, but they're equally heavy. And then in the fall, the fall is a little different because generally speaking, in the marching world, um, music manufacturers, so instruments, stick, mallets, you know, makers, so Vic First Zildjian, our money is made in the education realm. So we do a lot to support the retailers. So Steve Weiss, Lone Star, Percussion Source, all that kind of stuff. We, um, Chops Percussion, you know, we really push to try to support those guys. And in the fall, we don't really do any kind of direct sales, um, at least on my end, with high schools. We, gotcha. We encourage, we really try to encourage them to go to the retailer to support those local stores. Um, so that is so it different. For a high school that has a signature stick, totally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there's I'm only, well, there's sure. only, I mean, there's only like two. So. Yeah, pretty sure yeah. John Mapes is not going to Lone Star Percussion for his sticks. Right. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, totally. That's like a, you know, that's a major perk because a lot of people. There's a lot of reasons people want to buy something. Part of, or people are interested in buying something. It could be because of the name Big Firth. It could be because of the, you know, oh, I want a, pla- a nylon tip quad stick it could be the name john mapes it could be the combo so like um john part of the perks of him being a signature artist there's a variety of perks you know what i mean oh yeah uh, for sure there's royalties on the sales that does not suck and um there's uh hookups with groups 
with product and stuff, you know, but on the other end, you know, those guys, John and Ian are great examples. They really do a lot to try to make sure people are uh, John, especially on his social media presence. Dude, his Instagram, he, yeah. He's pushing the products. He's hyping other people using his stuff. Ian Grom does the same thing. Um, You know, they really, they do a lot. I mean, it helps all of us in the end. Like the more he promotes his stuff, the more people will buy it. And then his royalty check goes up, but that also means more sales for Vic Firth. And he could never do what he does without Vic. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think Um, I just saw one today that John like reposted on his Instagram story of like a message he got from some kid who was like, this was the first stick that I ever felt like allowed me to control my hands and my stick and my motion and my down, like something like that. And Mm -hmm. he was just like, I saw the same one. Yeah. It was, it's awesome, you know? And, so yeah, signature artists obviously get like a way bigger hookup than most, but I'll, for sure know, makes uh, sense. Yeah. But you know, and we try to help some groups out with some things like if a group is hurting financially and they reach out to me, Oh, we don't have a lot of money and we need this and the other. I'll be like, well, how about I send you bags? Cause everybody needs bags and no one wants to spend a dime on them because they're expensive. Um, especially if you have like five or six snares and you have three or four quads and you know, 10 keyboards, you're talking like five, 600 bucks just for bags. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and you need them. So sometimes yeah. I'll hook people up with that. And so in the fall, it's a lot more about just trying to support people with encouragement, with video. Uh, a lot of times I'll go to shows and just be there to support them. And a lot of those people that we connect with are involved with groups um, January through August. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I mean, yeah. That stuff make that that stuff makes a huge impact too on like the kids who attend those high schools and maybe later they go on to teach another group and they remember what they used in high school. Like for me personally, we used Vic Firth in high school. Um, we used the MS twos. We called them the Manstick Dose because it's pretty beefy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so like that was just like my thing. Like I go back. To, I always go back to like Vic Firth sticks because like it was my bread and butter. I knew it was reliable. Like it felt good. And like we we messed around and but. So that stuff just like it carries so much weight that you just never know where the ripple will go as time yeah, goes down. And that's that's like a, a very large primary part of the relationship we have with the drum corps and the independent WGI groups. Um, so like you said, the Boston Crusaders using Vic Firth, people seeing that huge, totally awesome. We love it. But a, a, a re- kind of a bigger part of it is who are those kids in the line? Because the chances of those kids in that drum line and in that front ensemble going on to be instructors and designers and decision makers on what products to buy for their groups is very high. And uh, we want them to really just feel like we love them because we do. And, um, and that kind of goes back a little bit to Vic. It's like everyone that I work with, they've all marched in one of those groups. They all have a story like we all have. So I remember, uh, this is kind of corny, and this guy Chuck might kill me, but oh well. Um, Chuck (laughs) and I were standing next to each other watching the cadets perform at finals in 2017. And we all know what happened in April of that year that caused things to potentially blow up and that core almost not exist. And, you know, it wasn't the best moment for them. No, and it was scary as an alum, you know, and you, you know that personal connection you have with the drum corps. And I was standing there with people that work at Vic Firth and Zildjian that have a relationship with that corps, watching them march finals, and we were all crying. You know, they, they, they weren't first place, but 
the fact that they went through and finished it, it was amazing. And it just reminded me why I love the people I work with so much because we're all, we're all just those kids marching on the field together. And we're all, like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, we're all chasing that feeling that we had marching. You guys are doing it right now, just by having the podcast. I don't want to come to any assumptions, but I'm guessing the dollars are not rolling in for you on the podcast. Um, Definitely not at the moment. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. You, you are not wrong in your does, assumption. Yeah. And if it ever does, it's well-deserved, but that sure as hell isn't the reason you're doing it. No. And, um, no. you know, we're all chasing that feeling. So I have a strong belief in our products and I think they're the best. And I think the people making them are the best. And I think the people that they work so hard to make sure this stuff is great for these kids. And, um, I work hard to make sure we sell as many as we can. So the company continues to thrive, but is one of my perks being able to go to, uh, the cadets rehearsal and the Santa Clara Vanguard rehearsal and the Phantom Regiment commercial and the Cavaliers rehearsal and the Blue Devils rehearsal and stand in front of those lines. It's so freaking awesome. Shameless you know? plug. I was in one of those. Uh, you were talking about like content and director of content and director of internet. I was in <laughs> one of those video series that's on the Vic Firth website, or it's probably on YouTube now. I'm not on the series on the website, but it was the marching percussion 101 that they did with uh, Brian Mason at Moorhead Space. Yes. Vic Firth came to Moorhead State where it was a super hot Saturday and filmed us doing like marching basics and warm up basics and stuff, playing chicken in a roll and accent tab. And we're all standing in the sun in jeans, blazing hot and T-shirts just getting cooked. I know. I remember Neil was there because he went over to uh, Brian Mason's house after we were all done and we had like steak and salmon and grilled out and hung out and stuff like that. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, to be around people who, I mean, you know, in order for the company to thrive and be great, we need to sell products. So we make money. There's no doubt about it, but everyone just loves education. They love yeah. music. They love, they love supporting it. Like we don't, I mean, those videos is educational things, the website, I mean, you know, yeah, it's a marketing tool and it's promoting product. But if you look at the content that's in there and like, you know, just the content of what's being talked about educationally and creatively, we, clearly we have an idea of what's going on because we love it so much. And um, yeah, that content is so good. Amped. Like I, I go back and I've watched those. I was like, this is this makes this makes total sense. Like if you have if you have a percussion instructor or somebody that's working with a drumline that has zero clue what they're doing. They could watch those videos and be like, okay, I could do that. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, it's it's honestly the biggest privilege and blessing I've ever been a part of um, separate from being a parent, you know, because it's just, it's just a responsibility and a privilege that is one in a million. And, you know, how many, how many morons exist in this world? And I have three little kids that I can play a part in them not being part of the moron pool. And being great people and good citizens and et cetera, et cetera. And if I can play any role in the marching percussion world where people feel supported and they feel like they're they're being promoted uh, in a way that helps them sustain their livelihood so they can continue being creative and they are able to do it with products that really help them fulfill what it is they're trying to do artistically, there's like no better privilege in the world for me. Um because I remember when I marched in the cadets and I didn't have any issues with my sticks and the pit had no issues with what they were doing. And um, I felt loved and supported by these companies. And I just want to be part of that. Yeah. Mike and I were talking earlier, just kind of like reiterating that, like 
I, I remember vividly Vic himself just like coming to our rehearsal at Crown in 2009 and 2010 and just like him just like, do you, do you guys like the stuff? Like just talking to us and we're like, yeah. <laughs> yep. we like he did stuff. the same thing at Blue Stars in 2010. The exact same thing. He was really cool. Yeah, so, you know, Vic was the principal timpanist for the Boston The Symphony BSO for like, for like 50 years. 50 years. Well into like decades into Vic Firth being well into him having millions. Let me put it that way. Yeah. He did not need it. He was doing it because he loved it that much. And he was playing in the, in the, in the orchestra. And when he got started, and then in the in the '60s, he was just like these freaking mallets suck, man. Like, what the hell? And so he's like, I could make better stuff myself, and that's what did it. And so then his other timpani buddies in the orchestra world were like, hook me up, hook me up. And then that's when Vic was like, man, you know, I could really, I could really, I'm good at this. I could contribute to the percussion world and make better stuff. And then we were very fortunate to create two things called the 5A and the 5B. Because um, <laughs> they are the number one sticks, not just number one in, in Vic, literally number one stick on the planet. And um, there's no stick sold more than the Vic Firth 5A and 5B. And um, thank God, because you know it allowed us to grow to this capacity to where we can make a variety of products at a really high level. And... You know, it's amazing. It's like the, you know, the Ralph Hardeman stick. That's the number one signature stick in the world of all brands. Interesting. I wouldn't yeah, have guessed I that. I can't go. I, I would. I would guess it. I can't go anywhere, any local music store, anywhere I've ever been that Hardeman hasn't been like the main stick that they've had yeah. in their selection in yeah, terms of marching sticks. You know, it's amazing. And yeah, so it's just been great. All of our signature artists are just. You know, it's a collection of people that have all different personalities, but they all have that same drive. Like, if you hang out with Mike Jackson, John Mapes, and Colin McNutt, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine three more different people. But that intense drive to just, I want to be the best at this, and I want to contribute the best possible product creatively to this idiom. I mean, those three guys are at the top. I mean, they're so intense. As, well, Colin McNutt, you can feel the intensity coming off of him. You're like, oh, my God, this guy's a bulldozer. Um, and he's just <laughs> they're all just amazing. And Mike Jackson is so quiet and much more reserved. He's much more cerebral. But he's like, um, I don't know, he's like a genius. You know what I mean? It's, this, it's like you're talking to a savant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Also the I mean, I marched for Mike also for a whole summer, and that's the exact impression I have. He's extremely good at what he does, kind of stoic kind of hard to read sometimes as a person but he's genuinely cares about those he's working with and has an incredible work drive work ethic to achieve yeah. like greatness yeah also as a sidebar vic firth not only the perfect pair and sticks and mallets but makes a damn good salt shake salt and pepper <laughs> shaker yeah well made a really good uh salt and pepper mills made not yeah. anymore I um, have some. Yeah, so that they're they are li they literally don't exist anymore. Um, so Vic, when he retired from the BSO, he uh, he was he's you know a, a cook. He just really loved getting into that side of things. And I didn't work for the company at the time, so you could get a lot more info from other guys that did. But you know, he has this such a great relationship with the wood mill industry, and he was able to acquire 
uh, some top-notch machinery and designers to create these high-level products. And so he made a bunch of them for a while and then uh, decided to get out of that business, sold the designs, patents, and machines. And I forget the name of the chef, but he's based out of Nashville. So uh -huh. technically, those devices, those different products exist, but they don't say Vic Firth anymore. I have a few in my house as well. They're pretty awesome. Yeah, they were on my wedding registry, and somebody bought them for me. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. So, yeah, for sure. Cool. <laughs> I love them. Well, guys, we've been going for a little over an hour and a half now. I think we've hit on just about everything we wanted to. I don't think we missed anything looking through the notes we had beforehand. And So, Brian, it's been great talking to you. Hope We will definitely see you around at uh, WGI Finals or I think – one or both yeah, of us dude, well, will probably be, be Evan will be shows. yeah Evan will be at WGI shows I'll be at a couple maybe Indy maybe Dayton we'll see um cool love to catch up real quick and meet you in person uh, officially but um yeah so thanks everyone for hanging out ran a little longer with this one but that's okay sometimes we get going you just gotta let it gotta let it go just gotta and, let it uh, ride man. yeah exactly so I'll <laughs> reiterate again yeah no no thank you um, make sure you hit that subscribe button on all the uh, podcast services, Apple and Spotify, uh, YouTube, you know, Instagram, Facebook, blah, blah, blah. You guys know the drill. Um, and we'll be back in uh, a few weeks with our next guest. Peace.